Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're watching this, and welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism and host of Hoover's Area 45 podcast and our recently launched Goodfellows broadcast that airs on Wednesdays. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution has been collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support freedom and improve the human condition. Our work has profoundly impacted public policy initiatives here in the United States and around the world. We're excited to be able to connect virtually with you to showcase the important work coming out of the institution. These policy briefings are an opportunity for you to hear directly from some of our nation's top scholars on the pressing issues facing the world during this difficult time. As we confront the challenges brought on by COVID-19, conversations like this have never been more important. We hope you enjoy and find value in these discussions, which will now begin. As a reminder, we will be taking audience questions and encourage you to submit yours at the Q&A button located at the bottom of your screen. Just look down at the bottom of your screen where it says Q&A, type in your question and we'll try to get to it toward the end of the, of the broadcast. Today's briefing is from Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. His focus is classics and military history. He is a best-selling author and has written or edited 24 books, the most recent of which is The Case for Trump. Victor Davis Hansen has been awarded both the National Humanities Medal and the Bradley Prize. Victor, you're a better man than I. If I had that medal, I would have it hanging around my neck 24-7. How are you today, my friend? Very good. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Uh, a interesting question, I think, before we get into the policy side of things, Victor, a lot of us are watching this from population centers around the country, around the globe, cities and suburbs and exurbs, uh, where we know the difference that has occurred the past couple of weeks. Life has come to a standstill. It's eerily quiet. You, Victor, are coming to us from a family farm. You're a fifth generation farmer, I might add, but you're right now about 15 miles outside of Fresno, I think. I'm curious as to what difference you note in an agricultural community in this kind of situation. Well, I think there's a, a sense that life uh, can go on and it will go on because agriculture by definition is, at least the production side, is a little bit of a solitary existence. And so when I'm looking out here at almonds or I'm looking down at uh, a grape vineyard or an, a plum orchard or I see trucks going by constantly headed toward the coast or even the east coast with chickens and eggs and uh, beef, there's a sense that agriculture is really important and people are looking to it to make sure that food is delivered to people who are sheltered and at home and that there's not as great a danger part because of population density. And as I said, Fresno County is, is a big county. It's got over a million people, 1.2 million, but we've only had a little over 100 cases, two deaths. And the other rural counties that I live near, Kings County, Tulare County, Kern County, they, they're analogous. They have far fewer cases per million residents and far fewer lethalities. So, it's not the it, it's not the feeling of being in battle that we had, say, at Stanford University before they shut down. Mm -hmm. So, Victor, here we are in the year 2020. Over half of Americans have been told to stay at home. Businesses have been told by government who's essential and who's not. People have been told to keep their distance from each other. And there's no foreseeable end to this. Maybe the end of April, maybe the end of May, June, July, who knows when. Here's what I'm curious about, Victor. If you go back and look at a virus that struck the United States in 1957, the Hong Kong flu, we could 
we could use a politically incorrect term back then called the Hong Kong flu. But the economy did not shut down in 1957 when we went through that strain. If you go back to 1918, Victor, President Woodrow Wilson, he did not hold daily press conferences to talk about the influenza epidemic. Congress did not do massive spending bills in response to it. The economy did not come to a halt. Why are we doing things differently in 2020, Victor, as opposed to 60 years ago and a century ago? There's a variety of reasons. One is we're a much more technologically sophisticated, interconnected population. So we, we do it because we can do it. We have television and the way that we're communicating uh, over the internet right now. So people are inured to that and they want instant information. We're a much more affluent population where we all feel that we're going to die in our late 70s or 80s in our sleep. That was a much more tragic society. They were a case of the so-called Spanish flu, they were in a war, which would kill about 50 million people, 60 million. The United States would lose about 120,000, almost half of them to the flu. And that was, part, that was considered part of the tragic existence. And people didn't have control over their medical, their hygienic, their economic circumstances to the degree that they feel that they do today. It was also a more tragic than therapeutic society where uh, people were, were used to a more physical existence. I'm speaking in this house that's been in my family for 145 years, and they have kind of a history. And I grew up hearing my grandparents talk about the 1918 flu, and they quarantined themselves out here, but they were completely self-sufficient. They had their own water, their own sewage, their own food, and they just didn't go very many places, and there was not very many places to go then. And I remember the, the stories of my aunt who went out uh, to swim once in 1922 at seven. She got polio and she ended up over here in the corner crippled for the rest of her life. She stayed in this house till she died in 1980. So, and I can remember the 1957 flu. I was four or five years old. That's one of my first memories that we had a tent in this house and we had a humidifier and we were all sort of told to breathe this era so we wouldn't die. But, and then I remember that everybody thought penicillin was a miracle drug. So we had Doc Nielsen who drove out in a car and then we went out and we rolled up our sleeve and he gave us an, a shot. And I don't know whether it helped for the virus. I should, should say, I know it didn't help for the virus, but we felt that penicillin was still a magic drug. You know, Victor's the days, the days just kind of, uh, come one after the other now in this situation. I get up in the morning, I have breakfast, I watch Governor Cuomo give his briefing. I have a light lunch, I watch Gavin Newsom give his briefing, I have a light dinner, I watch President Trump do his briefing. Each day just seems to be a continuation of the past. You're a historian, Victor, you've looked at societies and you at all times are looking at the question of discipline in a society. Is there any model we should be looking at for how long a country, especially a country that values civil liberty and freedom, how long a society can go on like this? Well, I mean, when we've been in similar situations, World War II, uh, if you remember the Japanese internment and the paranoia, and that didn't come, I mean, that right. came from sober and judicious and liberal-minded leaders like Earl Warren and FDR. Mm -hmm. They later regretted it, but at the time there was a panic that gripped the nation. And even we, we look back fondly at the productive history of World War too, but that was not a sustainable situation to have that much of your GDP devoted to military production. Right. And I can, and I can tell you that if this thing continues, 
the way it's charted by some of our modelers, the, the price will not just be economic, it'll be uh, in human lives because I'm, you're already starting to see, even out here, social breakdowns. I can tell you that within my circumference, there are people who are opening illegal barbershops out in the barn and there's, people, there's an illegal daycare center right down the street. There are canteens that are supposed to have takeout food and they're serving food with people sitting down. And I talk to a lot of people from a lot of different varieties of life and their attitude is sort of like the 1950s, that life was okay, it wasn't great, but I'm not going to destroy my children's livelihood on the basis of some edict and I'm going to try to navigate around it. And there are people who, when you go to the store here and a person is told one paper towel, one toilet paper, one hand cleanser, and they walk out with two, the clerk is in a dilemma because she says, if I don't, if I allow them to do it, they at least let me charge them and I can get the money from them. But if I say only one, they'll just walk out with two and it's a minor misdemeanor that's not going to be prosecuted. So there's already a frame of the society. And I think that because we're such a diverse country and we have the same diversity as Europe does. South Dakota is not Louisiana. Central Valley is not San Francisco. Uh, New York is not North Dakota or South Dakota. And we need to be a little bit more flexible and allow the states, if not the counties, to be uh, a little bit more liberal in the way that they adjudicate the perceived danger to their subset population. Right, so Victor, you mentioned models. The University of Washington has been doing a model on this and revised its numbers today. Uh, it's now suggesting that we're going to hit a peak mortality number this Sunday, which is good news. That means we're coming to, uh, to the hump in this thing. We're going to go downhill after that. Here's my question, Victor. There are one of two ways to look at that. Either people can look at the glass half full saying that you know, we, we behaved, we kept our distance, and you know, we're, we're keeping this thing under control, or conversely, conversely uh, Victor, people could look at this and say, you know, here's another example of, well, if you want to use the phrase fake news, lack of institutional confidence. Scientists told us this would happen and it didn't. Which of these two do you think is going to prevail, the half full argument or the half empty argument? Well, I hope it's the half full because there is a logic to the shutdown. Because if you're shut down and you're getting paid, at least some of the population is, and you feel that this is a sustainable proposition and you're not aware of the effects on other people in the self-employed because you're closed in. And then you think that the numbers have to be ever increasingly more optimistic. You have to get not 2.5% lethality rate, but 1% or half a percent, or you're not going to go out until it's 99.8 like a flu year, then that becomes a logic of its own that drives reality. So what I'm worried about is that, um, we have to be, we have to realize that it's not a dichotomy between the economy and the coronavirus. It's between lives and lives, and we're going to lose a lot of lives through suicide, substance abuse, anxieties, stress, neglected doctor's appointments, neglected surgeries, if we don't allow flexibility in people to go out. And as far as the modeling goes, this is the first epidemic as a historian that I can think of when the modelers had no accurate information whatsoever about the denominator, the number of people who actually have it. That's only based on those who are ill or 
feel that it exposed and took the effort to go get tested. And most people believe, and that's a model in itself, that that's a tenth of the actual case numbers. But it's very important because then that adjudicates the lethality rate per caseload. And then people say, well, we, it started out 1%, now it's 2.5, oh my gosh. But it's bound to go down when we have more data of people who have antibodies or inactive cases. And even the numerator, the number of people who are dying, is subject to interpretation because a lot of people with co-committant uh, physical issues and challenges are being listed as dying from the virus rather than with it. So there's so much uncertainty and that's reflected in the inability of the modelers to be correct. We're not gonna have 2.2 million people die as Imperial College and Neil Ferguson said. I don't think the Washington modelers would wanna go back to their initial uh, data. I don't think the modelers who convinced uh, Gavin Newsom three weeks ago to say that by the end of this month, 25 million right. Californians will have a case of COVID-19 and given the lethality rates, that would imply a million are gonna die. Or I don't think Mike DeWine in Ohio should have said on March 12th that uh, he thought 100,000 people had an active case when in fact there were about five, uh, there were about 100 who had tested positive, maybe 500 that, that might have had it. But he said it was doubling every six days based on his health commissioner or health director's modeling. And that would give us today, 24 days later, 1.6 million Ohioans and probably 40,000 dead. And as I look at the statistics yesterday, they have a little over 100 dead and about 5,000 cases. So there is a downside to modeling. The modeling is... The, is we have to be careful that when you make a model, it's not just an, a construct. It has consequences. And so far, I'm afraid that the media has suggested the consequences are always good because the pessimist serves two purposes. The pessimist warns us what could happen, and therefore we get a little hysterical and, and take the necessary measures. And then when he's found to be incorrect, he says, if I hadn't have done it, you wouldn't have taken these measures. And then if he's right, then he's sort of a grim person who was accurate. The optimist suffers a lose-lose situation. If he says the modeler is exaggerating, the data is incomplete, the, when he's found to be correct, everybody said, yeah, but it was only because of the pessimists that people changed their behavior that made your optimistic assessment possible. And if he's wrong, given life and death, they say to the optimist, well, you're a murderer because you said it wouldn't be this many dead. And because of you, people were not cautious. So we got to keep in mind the psychological landscape that these models are given. There are consequences when somebody tells Western governments that 2.2 million Americans are likely to die. And that had a lot of ramifications. And they didn't do that at your larger point in 1918, 1957, they didn't, I'm not saying they didn't have the statistical knowledge to make these models or the data retrieval abilities, but they didn't have confidence that they were all knowing and, and uh, they didn't have computers and things like that. So they were much more humble about uh, their own data and the ramifications for public policy. All right. For those just tuning in, I'm Bill Whalen, and this is the Hoover Institution's virtual policy briefing with Victor Davis Hanson. Victor, you mentioned Western government. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, and before that, Bill Clinton's chief of staff famously said, never let a serious crisis go to waste. 
you've been watching government, you've been watching what's going on in Congress, you've been watching what California has been doing statewide and locally. Tell us what you think government has done well in terms of this crisis, but also what would alarm you in the way of civil liberties. For example, do you would you be concerned that maybe a state like Rhode Island, which is just very upset that New Yorkers are driving through it on the way to Massachusetts, could we see a situation where maybe a state wants to shut down its borders because it wants to keep people who think they're sick out? How far do you think this will push us on the civil liberties? Well, I think we're at an, a crux right now because we reacted as we did after Pearl Harbor very rapidly to a, a very difficult situation in which the Chinese communist government lied about the nature of the birth of the virus, the transmission rate of the virus, the infectiousness of the virus, the spread of the virus, everything about the virus. Right. And that those on truce were echoed by the World Health Organization. So when we had the travel ban of January 31st, the World Health Organization, the Chinese government said it was unnecessary because you couldn't really transmit person to person, as they'd said a couple of weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. Given all that, and given all the acrimony and the CDC's test kits didn't work, uh, people were told to wear masks, not to wear masks, not to wear in. We're getting to a point where there is starting to emerge a consensus that what we're doing now has reduced the infectiousness. But where, where we're at a crux is this is not a sustainable situation and we're going to have to either have regional, regional uh, choice that people can modify the protocol or we have to realize that uh, if we don't get these antibody tests, we have no idea of the degree of herd uh, immunity. So we'll just go out and then we'll start the infectious process again, and we'll be able to justify this six or seven trillion dollar hit in the economy, I guess on the rationale, well, we gave us breathing time. We didn't get the hospitals overcrowded and we have the medical systems intact for the second or third or fourth wave. But each time we shelter and in space and then we don't get out, we don't develop herd mentality and then we'll go out again. And again, the only rationale I can see that's being given is that we're buying time for either anecdotes or vaccinations, but it's not a sustainable situation. The cost to the economy and to human lives will eventually, and I think eventually in terms of days rather than months, persuade people that we don't have a choice but to, to gradually be careful, well, wear masks, proper hygiene, don't go to a sports event maybe, but otherwise you've got to get back to work. Uh, Miranda, before we go to audience questions, you are listening to Victor Davis Hanson, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, if you want to learn more about Victor's research and the research of other Hoover fellows, please go to our website, and that is uh, hoover.org, www.hoover.org. Now let's take some audience questions. Let's begin with Kevin M., who writes to Victor, quote, to my knowledge, after every significant crisis such as war, the economy sees a post-war boom. Given the interpretation that we are in a war, would the same historical rule apply now? I think it will. I think once you're in 1919 or 1946, or even Athens after the war, there was a lot of research that I did earlier on in my career that showed that all the pessimistic appraisals of, at Athens was worn out, were false, that it actually had a boom after the Peloponnesian War. And I think the answer is that people feel they survived something and they haven't, they've been starved for social action or travel or restaurants. So then they indulge their appetites and agree even beyond uh, 
what they did before the crisis. And then economists can argue whether that makes up for the lull or not. But there are, there are also some auxiliary criteria we should examine. We're, we're reaching a point in the summer where we're going to have record low fuel prices. So driving, getting in a plane will be very cheap in a way it's never been. We have almost zero interest rates. Now you can argue that we're making a vast redistribution of money from passbook holders that are used to two or three or 4% on their money and they're getting it at zero and that lost revenue is going to be given to people who borrow money by zero interest. But whatever view you take of it, it's going to be an economic stimulus. And then we have the government I guess the logic of the government has been that we've lost six or seven trillion dollars of liquidity, both through the stock market and lost GDP, and that was real money that disappeared. And therefore, they have to, if I could be so crude, Neanderthal-like, and say they printed money, but they infused cash into the system, and they claim it will not be inflationary because it's replacing, at least temporarily, lost capital. But um, the point of all that windy answer is that there are going to be stimuli after this crisis that I think will really accelerate it. And then what's very important is what was the situation before the crisis? World War II, there were a lot of people who said, you know what, we had a second recession, depression almost in 38, 39, where we had 16% uh, unemployment, we had negative GDP, it's gonna be like that again. And they were very worried. But in our case, we went into this by creating 7 million jobs. So when we lose 7 million jobs, we're back to the status ante quo of 2016-17. So we had a strong economy, and that really was important. Uh, Victor, Greg and Chris have uh, written variations of the same question, which is, what is our relation going to look like with China moving forward? What's going to look like a year or two from now? Well... China's success was built on the following assumptions that they were going to outsource uh, rote labor. You could outsource rote labor to China and they were going to produce quality merchandise in a manner that was consistent with world norms and world mercantile and trade protocols. And when they didn't do that with dog food or drywall or pharmaceuticals, and people said, well, that was an abuse or that was an aberration, but it didn't endanger the paradigm. And there was a naivete that said, well, we can outsource our pharmaceutical industry to China because the richer it becomes, it's going to become more liberalized. We have 360,000 students in the United States. We have 20,000 people flying in per day. They are becoming liberalized and that someday Shanghai and Peking, Beijing are going to look like Paris and San Francisco. That's inevitable. They'll be democratic and liberal minded. That's not going to happen. And the reputation of China was destroyed during this. And now I think the general global perception is when is the next Wuhan virus, i.e. a coronavirus number, not two, but three coming out of Wuhan? And when will it get nine, 10 hours to San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, Paris? They've lost their international credibility because they lied about every aspect of the virus. They contaminated the World Health Organization. It's lost its credibility. And I, I don't think it's, gonna, it's going to be a sustainable proposition for an American company to produce ampicillin only in China. 
I think it's going to have connotations that they're not national or nationalistic or patriotic, and those won't be dirty words like they were in the past. So I think things are going to change. I think that's why the Chinese are so worried and that they're engaged in this propaganda campaign that they've weathered the virus better than anybody, that they're helping other countries because their international reputation is at rock bottom. Right. Victor Edward writes, quote, have the effects of the pandemic changed our relationship with our treaties with other nations, meaning are they redefined with new partners or changing partners? Well, obviously, people are starting to look at things in a different way. And one of them is Taiwan. We always thought, well, let's just not talk about Taiwan. We know they're democratic and they play by the rules, but they're small and they endanger our relationship with this rich and growing 1.4 billion person China. But now we look at it and we say, you know what, they play by all the rules. They were transparent. They protected their population. They uh, allowed people to voice dissension. They are a model of what China should have been. And why in the world do we have to feel guilty about uh, our support for Taiwan? I think the same is true of Japan and South Korea. So I, I see a lot of those countries being far more afraid than they even were before the crisis of China and far more amenable to a closer relationship with the United States. In terms of Europe, it's, it's a little bit more problematic because we were lectured that European ecumenicalism under the EU's guidelines was sort of a model, it, it, almost as if the model in the West will be a transnational organization that runs on solar and wind power, it relies on soft power, and it has no borders, the Schengen Agreement. And within a nanosecond during this early crisis, the borders closed. And for a while, Germany and other countries in the north were not willing to send medical supplies uh, to the south. And we had this sort of anti-EU creed that a country where people were dying with no money couldn't get money from people who had money when they were not dying as much. And when you add all of that together with the pre-existing fissures in the EU, the North-South financial crisis with Spain and Italy and Greece, the East-West over immigration with former Eastern European countries, Brexit, and then the fights that many EU-NATO countries had with us over funding of the alliance, I think the EU has taken a big hit. I don't know who you call, to, to paraphrase Henry Kissinger right now, do you call the president of the EU and does he speak for Italy or does he speak for Greece? Does he speak for Germany? I don't know. They haven't sorted that out. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on the EU to revert more to a model of the original European common market, that to stop trade barriers, encourage free trade within European nations, but don't have a EU grandee in Strasbourg trying to tell a person in Crete how many inches a banana has to be to be a banana. That type of central control, I think, is discredited. Right. Uh, Victor Corey has a question for you. Hello, Dr. Hansen. Do you think this will create a generation similar to the golden generation? Will this crisis affect the toughness of our current generation? Well, I mean, when we talk about the greatest generation, we, we characterize that by two seminal experiences. They went through a depression from 1929 to 1939, that was a decade. And then they fought a war that cost the world 70 million people and almost 500,000 Americans. I don't see this crisis 
lasting as long as those two crises are taking as much life from a much smaller population. What I do think it will do is give a dose of reality to the average American in this sense. There is an existential fact of life that when you get up in the morning, whether you're going to live the next day depends on the food you get, the water you drink, the sewage that's disposed, and the fuel that warms your apartment. So right now, what is important to you is not Michael Bloomberg financing uh, Chinese companies, half of whom were communists, to get them Western liquidity for them to be viable and to get a big cut out of it, and then to lecture us that China is a consensual society, our farmers don't have enough gray matter, and they don't have the technical skill of people like himself. That is irrelevant right now. In fact, it's less than irrelevant, it's dangerous given the naivety of that thinking that empowered the Chinese. What we want are people that know how to drop something in the ground, like Michael Bloomberg said was easy and didn't take gray matter. It takes a lot of gray matter. And whether you eat tomorrow in Manhattan depends on somebody over here in Hanford getting that crop to market and a trucker from Bakersfield driving all night and then a stock boy in Manhattan working at that supermarket. So I think there's going to be a much greater respect and honor for muscular labor and for people who we felt were the losers of globalization. They didn't know how to code or they didn't understand that there was a global market. I think we're going to see that if you want a ventilator or you want a pharmaceutical or you want a head of lettuce, then you're going to rely on an American that per maybe, just maybe you didn't think was that important to the global economy and you thought the global economy was everything when it turned out when you looked at the global economy whether it was the eu model or the world health organization's help for you or china's uh, role in it it wasn't too good and what was good was the guy driving all night on the interstate and the guy out there uh, picking uh, working on a potato harvester or the young kid, you know, that's uh, willing to go into the grocery store and stand there with a thousand customers every day and be exposed in theory and sell you things. So I think that's going to be very positive. Before I read this question, I'd like to uh, remind the audience, Victor Davis Hanson uh, has written a lot of remarkable books in his times, one of which uh, was published in 2017. It's called The Second World War, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. And I mentioned that because it ties to the next question, Victor, which comes from Kevin. He writes, quote, can you draw a comparison to the dark days of World War II in terms of combat deaths and how the leaders back then did a better job of communicating with the public about the sacrifices required then and now and how we can better carry on today? Yeah, I think so. I, what was the secret to Roosevelt's success is he had that gift that Thucydides attributed to Pericles and Themistocles. They called it pronoia, foresight. So he wakes up on December 8th and he's told Mr. Roosevelt, the zero is a much better plane than anything we have. It's better than the Wildcat. It's better than the P-40. And by the way, our torpedoes are substandard. The long tom torpedo is deadly. And by the way, they have more carriers in the Pacific than we do. And by the way, uh, they're just about ready to take over all of the European orphan colonies, whether it's Indonesia, they've already taken over Southeast Asia, they're going to take Singapore, we cannot save the Philippines. And Roosevelt was able to say, yes, but this is what the United States was capable in World War I. We took two million people 
in a year and a half and landed them in France without losing one in the middle of a world epidemic. And we eventually produced more munitions than did our allies put together, France and Britain. We can do that again. And this will be an answer for the, the unused capacity of the Great Depression. He knew that and he was able to nurse us along, Americans, and say, this is what we're going to do. Then Midway, he never said that Midway was the end of the war. He said, this is the, basically the end of the beginning. And then there are going to be more and more setbacks. But as we proceed, we're learning, we're on a learning curve. We have more uh, assets. And, you know, what a strange country that we're fighting in 1939-40, whether we can build a two-bit carrier like the Wasp or the Hornet that's about 15 to 19,000 tons, and then suddenly we wake up in 42 and say, oh, by the way, we're producing 27 fleet carriers, each one 30% bigger than the Wasp, and we're going to pay for it. And everybody says, well, how are you going to pay for it? And we're going to say, well, everybody was sort of sheltered at home during the Depression, and now they're working 20 hours a day, and they're creating real wealth, and we're going to build one B-24 every hour at Willow Run. And by the way, we're going to invent a new... Uh, B-29 that has 50,000 new parts in the cockpit alone. Uh, just a different attitude, a confidence. And I think that's what we have to do, that after we get used to this virus and what we've done, it'll be time to, to go out and conquer it. And I'm really amazed at all these people that we thought had lost the American spirit. They're experimenting with ventilators. They're experimenting with off-label drugs. They're in a competition to see which person can get the vaccination first. It, it, it's starting to happen like that. And it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. And I, I just went down to a, a market and I was talking to a guy. I said, how long have you been here? And he said, I said, I've been six hours. I said, oh, you're going to be done too. He goes, no, no, I have eight more hours. And I, he said, I said, are you going to get the virus? He goes, I don't know. I said, they're going to put a plastic barrier tomorrow. This is, you know, 90 days into it. And rather than damning everybody that he hasn't had a plastic barrier, he's looking forward to it. So there's a lot of people that still have that spirit from that generation. Victor, we have a question from Donna who writes, quote, a huge fan for starters, VDH. I live in California. Considering the homelessness in California, et cetera, why has California not ended up like New York? I heard there's such Very a good thing question. as herd immunity. We probably had it since the fall based on flu-like symptoms reported. Is this possible? That's a very good question. And here at Stanford University, uh, John Yannanides and Michael Levitt, a number of epidemiologists and statisticians and biophysicists are trying to figure that out because it does not make sense. We have half of the nation's homeless, about 150, 180,000 homeless. We have one-third of all of the nation's people in public assistance. One out of every three Californians who is admitted to a hospital has diabetes or prediabetes, which is a risk factor for COVID-19. We have the lowest, lowest number of nurses per 100,000 population, lowest number of doctors. We have the lowest number of hospital beds almost in the nation per 1,000 population. With 28% of the population lives below the Poverty level, 27% uh, were not born in the United States. You put all of that together and people looked at California and they said, it's not in a situation to resist an epidemic. And more importantly, LAX, SFO, San Diego, San Jose have these direct flights from China and they're bringing in five, six, seven thousand 7,000 a day of the 15 to 20,000 that are entering the United States. 
23 direct flights in this period from SFO alone to, from, to and from Wuhan. And so people thought, wow, it's going to be terrible. Gavin Newsom, I think three weeks ago, said 25 million people are going to have the virus. That would mean a million dead. We're a little bit halfway over his predictions. I don't think we're going to have 25 million. We have about 17,000 with known cases, probably 170,000. So everybody wants to know what happened. Was it California's warmer? Not really. The South is warmer at this time of the year, and they're suffering. Is it because we're less dense than New York? Maybe. But why would we have twice the population of New York and one-tenth the death toll or one-twentieth or one-thirtieth the caseload? And a lot of people thought, well, wait a minute, let's look at this a different way. Maybe that flu that he got and the flu that she got in November and maybe November, December and January and February, we were exposed to the first wave. And while we didn't get herd immunity, we got a lot of people, maybe 10 or 15% of the population got that flu that the CDC said was not influenza A, flu shots did not work on it. And it might not have been the flu. We were, we were told we had 16 outbreaks of influenza, even though that the CDC did not test very many of them. All we were told is those who did get tested, it was not influenza A, it might have been B. What I'm getting at is desperate for explanation of the inexplicable. And for those who say, well, we had shelter in place, but the day that uh, the governor enacted that, within two days, I think it was 10 other states, and within three days, New York did it. Right. So I don't think that I think it was helpful, but I don't think that explains the California paradox. And we don't know what the answer is. Hopefully with this new antibody, test, antibody testing from these Stanford doctors, we'll know very quickly. Victor, Kenneth wants you to break out your crystal ball. Here's his question. What effect will this crisis have on the November elections, both president and Congress? Let me add, Victor, that um, maybe an interesting angle to pursue here is how does Trump have, now have to calibrate his message, but also Joe Biden? Because you look at the history of uh, challengers who knock off incumbents, Victor, they don't get the job by saying coulda, woulda, shoulda. They have to offer agendas of their own. So how do you think this has affected the election? Whether we like it or not, uh, this virus has been weaponized. And by that, I mean every decision is massaged or modulated in the uh, media, either pro or, or, or against Trump. For the left, the hard left, they see it in a manner increasingly that it will do what Robert Mueller and impeachment did not. In other words, it'll show the world what they have been claiming all along that Trump is inept and the economy, his only signature issue they feel will, will crash and then they will win. And the right says, this was a existential threat but it's probably not the existential threat that killed 116 in 1957, or maybe not even in 2017 that killed 60,000. We can handle it. We've got to get back quicker and the economy will recover in time for the election. That's whether we like to admit that arithmetic of death, that's what it is. And that colors almost everything uh, that a person says. So, I never thought we'd get to the level of, politi of politicization when a president says an anti-malarial drug seems to work and we have anecdotal evidence. The CDC is taking this seriously. They're going to test. 
And then that becomes a either Trump was inspired and saved lives or Trump was a quack. Dr. Trump kill, will kill people. But that's the level of political discourse that we've descended to. And um, Joe Biden, uh, I think he thought that he would, it seemed logical, he had moments of enfeebleness on the campaign trail. He did well against Bernie Sanders in that last debate. And people thought, you know what? Joe will go back to his home. He'll rest. He's 77. And then he will do an FDR fireshy chat and antithesis to the daily rambunctious Trump. And his sobriety will impress people. Well, he started off teleprompting and then ad hoc and extemporary, and then he tried both, and then neither worked. So he didn't not he didn't provide, at least in tempo and comportment and assurance, an anecdote to Trump. But more importantly, he started with a false premise that Trump had rejected all his medical advice, anti-scientist, just like he doesn't believe in global warming, the Paris, he'll do the same thing. But actually, Trump has accepted almost all of the recommendations from science, and that put Biden in an untenable situation to disagree with Trump, but by extension, he's disagreeing with science. I'll give you one example. So Trump issues a travel ban on January 31st against all of the suggestions of China, the world community even, and the World Health Organization. And some of his own advisors like Anthony Fauci had switched. They said it wasn't necessary, now it's necessary. He does that. Immediately Biden feels he did that, I have to be against it. So he says that was mis, you know, that was xenophobic and racist. And that's what he was referring to. But then all of a sudden it works. It stops the 20,000 coming. And then the next day, Trump has a ban against Africa because they were having connecting flights. Ten days later, Europe connecting flights. Biden sort of mumbles, can't have that either. And then he's in a dilemma. How do I explain that I criticize something that I now endorse? Well, I meant that he, he used the word Chinese virus. That was what I meant. Well, he, he didn't mean that. So now he's saying, well, I would have done I would have had the ban, but I would have done it earlier. And so what does that mean? You would... You would have, if President Biden would have said, I don't want to be xenophobic and racist, so I'm going to stop all Chinese people coming in on January 10th, but I won't call them Chinese. How's that? It, it's, it gets into the fantastical and the surreal. So what he needs to do is just be empirical. Look at Trump, and when Trump does something well, follows advice or rejects bad advice, he says, I would do the same thing. And I, in the long run, he would do as well as being... Pavlovian and his attack on every single thing that, that Trump does. And the same, the same thing about criticizing Biden. He loses his, his train of thought, his sentence structure, but sometimes he's very clear. Right. And so people can't say, well, he's demented. They can say he has bouts of it. And we don't, they seem to be increasing, but you don't want to say he, he can't string together a sentence because sometimes he can. You got to be empirical in all, all these things if you can. Okay, Victor, we have one last question. It comes from Timothy. He writes, Dr. Hansen, I am reading your book, A War Like No Other, and you speak to how the Athenians emptied their treasury and pulled back from defending their farmlands in response to the attacking Spartans, a strategy to ride out the war. That appeared to be an unsustainable strategy for them. How do we convince Americans the response to COVID-19 can't rely on government handouts long-term while not trying to restart the economy? It's a very good point. I think the questioner is worried that we're creating a culture that we did not intend, that the longer that Americans are sheltered at home, 
and the longer that we have some compensation, we'll, we'll lose the, the cause and effect relationship that you go out and work and then that creates capital and money. And when you stay home, you're not creating goods and services. You and the country at large are impoverished and you can't just print money. And so, and you create a culture of complacency and you get a, a, a fear of the, the virus. What you want is a, a sense of defiance. You're going to say, well, as soon as we get these antibody testing, we're going to see that this damn virus does not kill, you know, three out of every hundred. It probably kills one or two out of every thousand. If it's like the flu, then damn it, we went through the 2009, the 2017 flu. Our grandparents and our parents survived 57. And that's what we're going to do. And then you know what? With this cheap gas and this interest, I'm going to go out and really get back into it. That's the attitude you got to have. Right. So I'm worried that the longer that we get into this attitude, the more complacent we become and the less, the more timid, the more frightened we become. And uh, you can start to see it some, when I start to see certain areas that I go out to people are, even though the, the rates of death have not met the modelers pessimistic expectations, people are becoming more pessimistic because the media focuses on the young man who was 22 years old who suddenly died in three days, rather than the person that was much more typical. It was 86 and had congestive heart failure and diabetes. And that's the scarifying rare exception is sensationalized in the way that the normal uh, tragic caseload is not. And so I think we have to, to be that way, but, uh, we don't. We, we have to let counties and states adapt and be fluid, as as you mentioned, and then that will that will create confidence and optimism. If we if we hear a, a governor or a bold mayor or a bold county board say, you know what, we're going to to be hygienic, social distancing, masks, but we're going to go out and work, then others will follow suit and we'll have a chain reaction. Victor, I've enjoyed this conversation. I'm certain the audience has as well. This is your policy briefing though, my friend, and so it's only appropriate that you get the final word. Well, all I can say is that we've all been here before. We've dealt with a 57, we've dealt with a 2009, we've dealt with a 2017 and 18. I know that the experts tell us that a coronavirus is different because it has the potential to be much more infectious and much more lethal, but we're not the same people we were in 2009 or even 17. We proceed at a geometric rate as well. We're better connected. We have better information. We have more medical protocols. We have a worldwide Nobel Prize race right now to find not just a vaccination, but an effective anecdote. And I think that geometrically, we're getting better than the virus is, and we should be confident about that. Victor, thanks so much for a great conversation. Have a good day, my friend. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's uh, virtual policy briefing. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with the redoubtable Victor Davis Hansen. Uh, the Hoover Institution is doing these twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. In fact, our next virtual policy briefing will be Tuesday, April the 14th at 11 a.m. Pacific time, 1 p.m. Eastern time. The subject is COVID-19 and national security, and the guest will be Secretary Condoleezza Rice. Thank you for heard of her. Condoleezza Rice is a senior fellow on public policy at the Hoover Institution. She served as the 66th Secretary of State of the United States, the second woman and first African-American woman to hold the post. And effective this September, Secretary Rice will be the next director of the Hoover Institution, and we're all very excited about that here on the farm. You can join Tuesday's briefing at the same link you signed in on today. 
And if you'd like to see more fellow analysis on the coronavirus, go to hoover.org, where we've set up an entire section dated solely to COVID-19 research. Thanks again for taking part in the briefing. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay strong. We'll see you soon.